For an introduction to our sermon this morning, I'd like for you to turn to Galatians chapter 5 for the reading of this scripture. While you're turning, just a few comments. This chapter is about freedom, but you have to kind of read between the lines to really understand exactly what he is, is saying. I teach U.S. history, our country was founded on a desire for freedom. And what our founding fathers did was an amazing, innovative experiment in modern days like the world had not seen. And yet, we still fall short of true freedom. It isn't quite like that. Let's see what, Paul's, or what Paul says it is. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, 
as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Turn to James chapter 1 for our sermon this morning. James 1, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 27. This passage contains a a very familiar verse to to all of us. We've probably heard this verse from, from little up. This phrase, be doers of the word and not hearers only. But I'd like to look at this verse in its context this morning. For some of you, this this verse is probably a bit of a comfort. It's comforting to know that that you are a doer. The Bible says, be a doer, and you're doing things. So we kind of read this verse and don't really even pay attention to it because we know we're doing something. We we think we've got this one nailed down. But for some of you, this verse might be uncomfortable. This, This principle might cause some guilt. Maybe it's because you have resisted the word or you haven't allowed it to change your life. You haven't allowed it to shape your behavior. Or maybe you're uncomfortable because you're not sure if you've done enough. You've done a lot of doing, but what if you miss something? What if there's something you're supposed to be doing that you're not doing? Or what if something you think you're doing right is actually wrong? Are you being a proper doer of the word? And to be clear, God's word must order our lives. But I think the emphasis of this passage is that God's word must first order our hearts. And then it's from a heart that is submitted and committed to God's word that a life of true religion will flow. So let's read the passage, James 1.22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer... He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in the first half of this chapter, James has discussed the testing of faith that the believers would encounter, and he told them to rejoice in their trials. 
he described the nature of faith. He said that faith is stabilizing and transforming, and this is contrasted to the instability of doubting. And then he discussed the temptations to sin that they would encounter and encourage them to, rem to remain steadfast in their faith. But here in the, in the last half of the chapter, he starts talking about the importance of the Word in their lives. Without the Word, all of our striving is vain. He says we've been brought forth by the Word of truth. So as, as Christ followers, we have been birthed by this Word of truth. We've, we've been delivered from death to life by this living Word, by Jesus, the Logos, the expression of the Father. And this is the, the DNA of who we are and the foundation of all that we do. Our identity is in Christ. He is our brother. He has walked on our soil. He has felt our emotions. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. And it is in Christ that we become the righteousness of God. So our, our identity is based on the living word of Christ. And then he follows that by discussing the power of the word. And we discussed in the last sermon the destructive power of, of negative words that we speak and of anger. But stronger than the negative power of selfish human words is the transforming power of the eternal word. And as followers of Christ, we receive the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. So it's in this discussion of the word, the, the power of the word, the transforming nature of the word, that James tells them, be doers of the word. He says, you've been brought forth by the word of truth, that you would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, and you are to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But then in verse 22, he says, but become doers of the word. Or this word that, that um, is translated be can also be translated become, and, and I think that, that changes the image just a little bit. It's not just something that we do, it's something that we are. It's, it's a path that we walk, it's a journey of faith. When the disciples asked Jesus who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus put a child in their midst and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the same word, become like children. And when Jesus called his disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And so our life in Christ is a journey. It's not just a one-time decision. The Bible talks about it as a gate that we must go through and, and a path that we walk. And this path that we walk is a path of becoming. We become doers of the word. And it's as, we, as we're looking to Christ and his word, we see with greater clarity both our sin and our Savior. And the greater that our clarity is on, on both counts and in recognizing our sin and our Savior, the more the word will guide us in a life of confession and worship, a life of doing the word. But before he expounds on, on what he means here by doing the word, he illustrates it by presenting the contrast. The contrast is those who are hearers only. Now it's important to note, he doesn't say do not be hearers of the word, because there's a distinct possibility that you can be a doer and not a hearer. 
either you're so busy with doing that you don't take time to hear, or you're so certain in your doing that you don't really think you need to hear anything more. You already know everything that there is to do, and you don't really want to bother learning anything else. But hearing is essential to doing. What he says is don't be hearers only. Hearing is not just a good thing. It's not important. Hearing is critical. The Bible says, how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we must hear the word if we are to have faith and if we are to believe. But he says, hearing without doing is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And so if we think about mirrors, we know what a mirror is. But the mirrors back then were not like the mirrors that we have today. They didn't have glass mirrors that reflected an exact image of what we have. They usually used polished metal, typically bronze, or if you were rich, you would use gold. And, and this was, was kind of hammered out to be a, a flat, as flat as possible. And you know that a mirror has to be perfectly flat to give you a good image. If, if you look in, in one of the really old glass mirrors, it, it gives you this bit of a wavy image. And you have to move around a little bit to find that, that spot that, that doesn't look like you really do have a, a hairy eyeball. And, and these mirrors probably weren't perfectly flat either. So the, the image that you got was, was a rough reflection, but it was, it was still a reflection. And it was the best they had. And I think it's interesting that they had mirrors back then. You know, they, they didn't have a lot of technology, but they had mirrors. And it's because we care what we look like. Most of us looked in a mirror this morning before we left the house. And some of us probably should have looked a little longer. But we fix what we can see and when, when we look in the mirror and see something wrong. And James says here that the one who's a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and then goes away and forgets what he was like. And, and some commentators point out that this, this word man isn't the generic word for person. It, it, it's specific to a male. So I guess he, he assumes we wouldn't imagine that a female would do that. But he says that the man goes away and forgets what he was like. So most of us wake up in the morning with, with some version of bedhead hair, except for the, the few, I guess, that don't have hair. But before you leave the house, you, you kind of check the mirror and make sure your, your hair is presentable. But, you know, if I was running late and I, I kind of checked my hair while I was brushing my teeth and then ran out the door without combing my hair, you would know it. It wouldn't look like this. And then someone would eventually get up the nerve to suggest I, I should maybe look in the mirror. And, and so while I had looked in the mirror and, and knew what I looked like, I, I forgot. I was distracted. I hadn't acted on what I saw. So if it happens once, you kind of laugh about it and you're embarrassed and, and you'll remember next time to, to pay more attention before you rush out the door. But if it happens over and over, if it's normal for me to show up with my hair uncombed and, and stains on my shirt and, and dirt on my face, then you start to get worried. You know, is, is something wrong with me? Am I having a mental breakdown? Am I getting dementia? James says that the person who looks into the mirror and does not act on what he sees is deluded. He says in verse 22, he is deceived. So his, his beliefs and perceptions don't line up with reality. There's something wrong. 
he doesn't say that the hearer never does anything, but that the hearer doesn't act on what he sees. He forgets what is true, and he doesn't have a true knowledge of himself. But most importantly, what he does is not congruent with what is true. He is deceiving himself. This word hearer also has the idea of an auditor. And so in, in college, you have the option of, of taking a class for credit or just auditing the class. So if you take it for credit, you have to pay more for it, and you have to complete all the homework requirements, and then you get credit for the class, and, and that counts towards your diploma. But on the other hand, if you audit the class, you don't have to pay as much, and there's really no homework requirements. You can do as much or as little as you want, and you can skip class if you want as well. There's nothing really holding you to it, and, and nobody really expects you to, to um, put more into it than you want. And it's kind of annoying sitting beside someone who's auditing a class when, when you're taking it for credit because they're just kind of chilling out and, and you know, playing on their phone and, and you're there busting your brains trying to, to get all this information. But here he says you can't audit the Christian life. You can't just be a hearer of the Christian life. Now, you might be an auditor if, if you attend church each week, but you don't really expect to learn anything you don't really expect to change anything about your life because of the word that you hear preached. You kind of come and you have your routine and the people that you like to see and hang out with, and coming to church is just part of your social life. You don't really expect any, any responsibility, and you won't accept any responsibility for the life of the church. So in a crowd this size, I'm going to suggest that there's some people here this morning who are auditing the Christian life. You look at yourself in the mirror briefly, and then you go away and forget what you saw. You don't want to or intend to do anything about what the Word reveals to you about your sin. If you hear the Word talk about sin, you're quick to apply it to everyone else but yourself. So if this is you, if you're here auditing this morning, I'm glad that you're here. But if you're only here auditing, you are deceiving yourself. Showing up and hearing the word is a start, but showing up and hearing the word does not make you a Christian unless you receive with meekness the implanted word. The word must be living and burning inside you and lighting your path and shaping your heart in love for Christ and for your neighbor. If the word is in you, then you will live it. I think our, what I call checklist Christianity culture makes it easy to think that we're doers of the word. We pray the sinner's prayer, we get baptized, we join the church, we, we do what we're told, we go to church every Sunday. So, so we're doers, and, and we think we've kind of got this one nailed down. But not so fast, he says. Let's look at what he means by being a doer. He says in verse 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we have two people looking into a mirror. So we have, um, in verse 23, the one who looks intently at his natural face. In verse 25, the one who looks intently into the perfect law. And th this word looks in verse 25 is different than the one that was used up in verse 23. 
The word in, in 25, the word looks, is a verb that means to, to stoop or bend. It has this idea of, of paying close attention to, that there's a, a careful and a thoughtful consideration of the word. And this is the hearing. Hearing is important, and how we hear is also important. We, we need to pay attention to what we're hearing. What the word says matters. But I'd, I'd like to look a little bit about at what he, the term he uses. He says, the one who looks into the perfect law. So what did he mean by the perfect law? Of course, they didn't have the New Testament compiled at this time. So what was he referring to? They had the Old Testament law, but he calls this perfect law, the law of liberty. Jeremiah prophesied of this law in Jeremiah 31. He said, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then Jesus said in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The, the perfect law is essentially the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the perfect law is the completed law. It's the law that was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And it's the law of liberty. It's a law of freedom. We are set free in Christ. But what are we set free from? We're set free from the law of sin and death, not to live unto ourselves, but to live according to the Spirit. Romans 8 again, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that this law of liberty as we also saw in our scripture reading in Galatians 5, it frees us from the bondage to sin. It also frees us from the need to atone for our sin. It frees our hearts to live in the righteousness that God has provided through Christ. But this law demands more of us than the checklist of the Old Testament law. It demands more than external observances. Because the law of the Spirit results in change of the heart. So when we look into the perfect law, we, we stoop, we pay attention to it, we labor to understand it, and then we do it, we obey it. The word of God, properly understood and meekly received, will result in action. We are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We must persevere. The message of the epistles is one of perseverance. Romans 8 says we, we groan in, inwardly as we await our redemption. 2 Corinthians 4 says we do not lose heart. And Galatians 6 says, let us not grow weary in doing good. Ephesians 6, keep alert with all perseverance. So this is something that we must do in the strength of the Lord. And we get the strength from the Lord by being close to the Lord and by walking close to the Lord and in his word. And as, as we do this, as we persevere in Christ, James says, the one who does it is blessed in his doing. So the, the blessing is in the doing. It's as we do God's will, as we walk 
in Christ that we will experience the blessing as you're doing the work, as you're living out the life of the word. So one thing that we see when we look into the law is the glory of God, which transforms us into his image. But the other thing we see is our own sinfulness. And the closer that we look into the word, the more we recognize the sin that clings so closely. We see our selfish motives, our unloving attitudes, our self-serving pursuits. We might manage the public performance of our lives, but we need to be honest with the reality of our hearts. So as we stoop and gaze into the Word of God, we will become more aware of the areas that He still wants to change in us. And, and I challenge you, as, as I talk about this, we, we tend to apply this to other people. We think about other people whose hearts are selfish or proud or not right. But the challenge is, are you willing to apply the Word to your own heart? And James anticipates this problem. He, he anticipates this assumption of the readers that they were pretty good doers of the word because he was writing, after all, to the Jews. He was writing to a people who over thousands of years had developed this culture of religious ritual and ceremony and observances. It was a religious culture that was initially based on the Mosaic law, but it had lost its purpose and focus, and they were hanging on to the ritual while completely missing the point of the law. If you think you are religious because of your external observances and rituals, James says, here is a test to evaluate your religion. What about your tongue? What about your tongue? He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue and deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Imagine that you could replay all your communication in the past week or the past month, not just the words you said, but, but anything you communicated electronically or written. What do you hear? What, what is your tongue saying? What are you talking to other people about? And how are you talking to other people? James cares a lot about the quality of our faith, and he gives us some tests to evaluate whether our faith is dead or alive, and he spends most of chapter 3 on the tongue. The tongue is a very important indicator of our heart, and Jesus spoke of this as well. He says in Luke 6 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Then he follows that by talking about the man who built his house on the rock as the one who hears the words of Jesus and does them, and the one who hears his words and does not do them is the one who built his house on a ground without foundation, and it fell. You know, we, we say that what we see on the outside of a person reflects what is in their heart, but Jesus said what you speak comes from your heart. According to Jesus and according to James, the way to evaluate the heart is not primarily by what you see, but by what you hear. And what James is, is telling these people is that all of their religious ritual is worthless if their heart is not changed. Your external observation, ob, observations are worthless if your tongue is not controlled. Jesus also had the same message for the scribes and Pharisees. They, he condemned them because they cleaned the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside was full of greed and self-indulgent. First he said, clean the inside of the cup and plate. 
that the outside may also be clean. And Jesus wasn't saying that it doesn't matter what's on the outside, but if the focus on the outside takes away from the, the life and regeneration of the inside, then it's all worthless. But this kind of, of living focus on the outside isn't only worthless, it's dangerous. It's dangerous because you risk deceiving your own heart. You risk giving yourself or other people a false assurance of salvation based on checklist obedience. And if, this, if the security of your salvation is based on your observation of religious rituals, then it's easy for you to control that, and you can feel pretty secure about it. But if you're honest about your heart and the sin, the sin that clings so closely, you will find far greater security in knowing that your salvation is not based on what you do, but on what Christ has done. Holiness is Christ in me. So salvation must be lived out of the heart. And that's what James is pushing for throughout this entire letter. True saving faith transforms our life. It starts in the heart, but then it is worked out in real, physical, tangible, observable ways. And so he says in verse 27 what the witness of true religion is. The doer of the word will visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and, and keep oneself unstained from the world. So the, the test of the tongue is, is representative of what's in our hearts. And I think this directive to care for the orphans and widows is also representative of our duty to love. Our, our entire Christian life isn't summed up in, in whether or not we care for orphans and widows, but it's, it's this, this concern that we have for others and our, our willingness to love those who are in need. And we know that, that God has a special concern for the orphans and widows, as, as we've discussed in the past. And just one verse from Psalm 68 that describes David's understanding of God. He says, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. And God told his people in, in Isaiah 1 that he was tired of their vain offerings. So these, his people were living in sin, but they continued to bring their offerings and to keep their religious feasts. He told them, stop doing evil. But what were they to do instead? He said, to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. So if we are going to be doers of the word, we must, above all else, be marked by love. We will love our brother, we will love our enemy, and we will love those on the margins. In the kingdom of this world, the weak don't survive. They live on the margins. But in the kingdom of Christ, the weak are made strong and the unlovely become lovable. This happens spiritually to all of us, but it must also happen in physical ways to the ones who are weak and desolate, both among us and around us. And this is the test of God's love in our hearts, if we have love for others. The orphans and the widows represent the most vulnerable segments of society. And this word visit has this idea of, of an ongoing care and love and concern for their well-being. And in different societies, orphans and widows have had different uh, programs in place to, to look after their welfare. I think in our day, our widows are, are relatively well taken care of, 
they're not desolate, they're not going hungry, but we still have widows among us, and, and it is our duty to care for them, to, to look after them, have an ongoing concern for their well-being. There's also needs in our community that we can minister to, and, and these are things we're familiar with, the food pantry, the Salvation Army, the pregnancy center, foster care. These are all people who are on the margins, people who are in need, who we can, can reach out to in Christian love. And the, the foster care particularly is an ongoing need in our community. They're, these children are essentially orphans, children whose parents are not able to provide care for them. It's not just the babies, but, but children of all ages. And what would it be like if, if the Mennonites here in the valley were not known for their cooking or their well-kept farms or their large families or whatever it is, but what if we were known for our self-giving, self-sacrificing love that we had, particularly for the orphans and the marginalized in Rockingham County? What if when people said, oh yeah, those Mennonites in Rockingham County, those are the ones who have the best programs in place to care for the needy. If you're needy in Rockingham County, those Mennonites will take care of you. How would the testimony of Christ be advanced if we were known for our loves, if we were marked as doers of the word? If we are doers of the word, we will love others. James also says that we will keep ourselves unstained from the world. There's almost a tension between these two ideas because the closer we get to those in need, the messier things tend to get. But he's not talking about being unstained by someone's dirty feet. He's bringing it back to a matter of the heart. And what is it that our hearts are pursuing? If we're not pursuing other people, if, if we're not pursuing others in love, we are probably pursuing our own selfish desires. The world says to look out for yourself. Satan says do what makes you feel good. John talks about the world as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We are, we are to be separated to God in our hearts, and we live it out in ways that make that obvious. Psalm 1 says, Happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of sinners, or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. The more we delight in God's word, the less enticed we are with the world's pleasures. So whatever the, the temptation of the world is for you, as a doer of the word, you will seek to distance yourself from that temptation and live out of God's love. But I, I think we, we tend to, to do this to exclusion of loving others. We're not to isolate ourselves from the world, but to keep our heart pure and focused on Christ, even as we're ministering to those in need. So where are you this morning? Are you auditing the Christian life? Have you just been living for yourself, willing to put on the ritual, but not doing the word? Have you gazed into the word? Have you stooped to look closely into the perfect law of liberty, the law that frees you from your bondage to sin and death? Have you received the implanted word? Becoming a doer of the word flows out of a heart that has been changed by the word. 
So has your heart been changed? Does your tongue testify to this? Do you speak hastily or out of anger? Do you speak negatively about others? Or do you live out of a pure heart, one that cares for the weak and the needy at your own expense? Is your heart pure before God, pursuing a greater knowledge of Christ so that you reflect his glory? True religion flows from a heart fully committed to the living word of God. Let's have a song. <laughs>